All right, our text this morning is going to be 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. While you're turning there, I just want to thank you all for being here. I am thankful also for the opportunity to preach again. And if you remember, the last time I preached, uh, I started what I called an intermittent series dealing with biblical leadership. And I'm going to continue that today. Uh, it's sort of fitting with uh, the context that we have this morning with Donnie coming forward and all that, and I just wanted to continue that series today with this opportunity, and we're going to actually start to look at the qualifications of a pastor. So if there was a title, it would be Discerning a Man's Qualifications to Pastor, and this would be part one. But you're there in Timothy. I want to read to you just a, a brief snippet or kind of talk to you a little bit out of Ephesians chapter 4 first to set this up. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 8 says, When Jesus rose from the grave and ascended to heaven, he gave gifts to men. If we drop down to verse 11, it also says that he gave the apostles, the, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. And what's interesting is that the word gave in verse 8 and verse 11, is this, they're the same word. And then this word uh, that, that uh, comes from that for gift in verse 8 is a derivative of that word. And so he gave gifts when he ascended and rose on high. Then in verse 11, we see that that gift that he gave was these offices in the church, these, these uh, men to help shepherd and lead and guide the church. And the gift itself is a word that comes from that, that, that word gave. So this means the gifts given in verse 8 are the apostles. They are the prophets, the evangelists, and the teaching pastors that are mentioned there in verse 11. And I start here because I think it's important that we shape our view of what pastoral work is with that text in mind. It's not just, you know, that Donnie wants to do something, that he wants to, to feel important or to, to serve in a special way. What we're trying to discern in looking at him or Jeffrey or your ongoing uh, discernment of my qualifications and Andrew's is whether or not we still show signs of being a gift that Christ has given to this church. And we need to understand and, and have a view of pastoral work in that way. That's not to pedestal me or Donnie or Andrew or Jeffrey. It's to pedestal Christ. He's the giver of the gifts. He's the one who loves the church. He's the one who, who died and rose and ascended on high. And, and pastoral ministry is one of those things that he has given in his overflow of generosity to the church. So seeing things in this light, we have, a, we have more occasion to rejoice over the extravagant kindness then of God toward Union Baptist Church. Like Andrew mentioned in what he prayed a while ago, there, there are churches in this county that struggle to have or to keep one pastor. And, and we have two at the time and two more who, who want to, to serve here. And that's God's, that's God's grace. That's God's kindness to this flock. Let's read together here in 1 Timothy chapter 3. We'll look at verses 1 through 7, and I really won't get much farther than verse uh, 2. But I'm going to read it all. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. 
He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Will you pray with me? Father, I stand in need of grace this morning, but the good news is you have an overabounding supply of grace. And although I am weak and insufficient, easily distracted, God, uh, limited in my capabilities, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And I do not come and preach, Lord, attempting to do so in my own strength or my own wit or cunning or wisdom, but I want to hide myself in Christ so that when I'm weak, then I'm strong because my strength comes from Him. So God, speak through the Word today. Let the word be heard. Let your voice ring loud and clear. And let me simply be the instrument through which you deliver that word, God. Bless what's said here today, that it would edify the church, that it would glorify Christ. And we ask it through him. Amen. So this text, along with, with Titus, have been a standard throughout church history for discerning a man's fitness to pastor. From the earliest days, obviously, when these books were penned, and particularly this passage of Scripture here, it's been used to help God's church uh, structure itself and find qualified men to pastor. And that was the occasion when Paul wrote to Timothy. That was the need in the church of Ephesus. And so Paul wrote to Timothy to instruct him on how to set the church in Ephesus in order. So in what we call chapter 3, remember there were no chapters and verses back then, it was just a letter, but what we call chapter 3 in Paul's writings, he lays out uh, the qualifications for pastoral work. And these are the things, we, we need to keep this in mind, these are not the suggestions of what would be nice if you can find it in somebody. These are the have-to-haves. The bar none, and, and it's not a smorgasbord, you pick a little bit of this, a little bit of that, you have to see the evidence of God's grace in every one of these qualifications in anyone who would pastor a church. It doesn't mean that we hold them perfectly, uh, without fail or flaw, but they have to be there. You can't say, well, he's 50% qualified, and so that'll just have to do. Now, these are the qualifications. They are the must-haves. They are commanded by God. This is what he desires in anyone who would pastor. Therefore, it's what we as faithful Christians ought to desire from anyone that would pastor. So let's look at verse 1 together. Verse 1 begins by this, by saying this, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Well, there are two things to note right away when we look at that. When we see what, what Paul's saying here, we need to, to note these two things. First of all, if anyone... That's a funny place to stop, but I just want you to notice that that's inclusive language. I don't have a better term for that, and, and there's obviously boundaries on that. There are limitations and conditions to what that means that we'll talk about as we unfold this text. But notice that if anyone, so this, this task of pastoring is not limited then to an uber-elite group. It's not set aside for scholars only, or people that have necessarily gone to, to Bible school. Is that good? Yes. But it's not this elite group. It's not, you're not set aside for pastoral work because you belong to a particular race 
where your skin's a certain color, or you have a social status that meets the requirements of pastoral work, or your education level, or your experience necessarily, or you're just an expert orator. None of those things are there. Paul doesn't say, to, he doesn't limit it down. He, in, in, in one sense, within the other boundaries that he sets out there, he says it's kind of broad if anyone aspires. Now, we will look at how he funnels that down in, in just a minute, but there is a broadness to this. It's not an elite group, a special class of people, limited to one geography. But the second thing I want us to see is that he says, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. And I want to pause on those two words for just a little bit, but we'll start with the second one. The thing to note here is that pastoring begins with desire on the part of the man of God. There's a desire in some man's heart to pastor. Peter would say it this way, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. So we learn here that pastors are not nominated, appointed, uh, they're not compelled into pastoral work. There is a process that, we, that we're laying out that we're all in, uh, enjoined in this process and we have a part to play, but we don't go out and, and you look like you would be a good pastor and you look like you would be a good pastor, so let's go do this. What Paul is saying and what Peter is saying is that it's not compelled, it's not forced, it starts with a willingness and a desire within the heart of a man. They must desire the work themselves. And there are many wise reasons for this. Just historically, we know that, that the church has gotten off track at different times and in different locations because of education. And they did choose the man in town who could read and who could speak, regardless of whether or not he was converted. And it was disastrous in those churches. And so it's not just a matter of, is he educated? And can he orate? Those are, you don't see those qualifications on this list here. And so the church at times in different cities and locations would grab the educated guy in the town, they would stick him up in front of the church, and you're going to be the pastor because you're the only one who can. And that's, that's, not what, that, that's antithetical to what the Scriptures are teaching here. It's not under compulsion. You don't pastor because somebody comes up to you and says, Hey, brother, the Lord told me to tell you, you need to pastor this church. Now, we may come along as some kind of a confirmation to what the Spirit of God's already doing in, in somebody's heart, but we'd never come up to somebody and say, the Lord told me to tell you it's your job to pastor here or anywhere else because it's not under compulsion. It's, it's willingly. It's, it begins with desire. Just think about the, the goals, the desires, and what, what definition of success a man would assign to pastoral work if it was because he was compelled to do it and not because he was willing to do it. Let's take another look at verse 1 here. Let's take a look at these words, aspire and desire. And again, I said I would start with desire first. This word describes an internal reality. The word desire, it's the second one in the sentence there, second one in, verse, in the verse there. It means to long for something. And so that's why it's an internal thing that starts with the individual. It's a desire. It's a longing for something. In this case, the longing is attached to pastoral ministry. He desires to be an overseer. And so he has a longing for that work. There's a heart motivation there. <clears throat> the idea is that if God has set a man aside as a gift to be received by the church, he will at some point create within that man a longing or desire to serve in this way. 
Now, something's kind of shifted over time, though. We've, we read this, this passage, and it says, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. And we tend to, t- to talk in, in terms of calling. And I, I'm not going to say that that's wrong, but I just want to make sure that we don't misunderstand what we talk about when we talk about calling. Because personally, I feel like this has sort of morphed into not just calling, but some kind of mystical calling. And, and I myself struggled with this as a young man when we talk about, I feel like the Lord's called me to pastoral ministry. What does that mean? And then you read some of these old timers and it's this mystical experience. And, you know, it's almost as if the heavens parted and the angels sang over this man as he knelt with his Bible. And, and the Lord just proclaimed with a thundering voice, I want you to shepherd my people. What well, didn't happen for me? Nothing even close to that happened for me. And so for years, I'm like, do I do this or not? Am I called? Am I not called? Where do I go? Because what I heard so many people talk about, and then some of the things that are semi-helpful statements, like if you can do anything else but preach, then do it. That's a, there is truth in that, but let me just share my struggle. I'm bivocational. I'm always going to do something else along with preaching. And so many churches are going to have bivocational pastors, so that statement can be unhelpful. Because I can always be a safety guy. It's what I got a degree in. We have to understand it's not just, you know, could you do anything else? Are you only gifted to pastor? We have to clarify language is the point that I'm getting at. And I think when we listen to those quotes, we elevate them up above the language of the Scripture sometimes because we love the men who say them. And we start using things like calling, and that sort of morphs into mystical calling. And it's got to be some some mystical spiritual experience that you have to confirm that God wants you to pastor. And the text is plain. It starts with desire. Do you want to? Do you long to? Is there something in you that says, man, I I really want to shepherd the people of God? That's step number one, and that's not mystical. And and so that was helpful to me when I started to come to this understanding that it's, it's not this, all these outward signs confirming for me. What the text is saying is that there's this inner desire within me. Check. That was there. And that's what Donnie stands up today and is telling us, that there's that step one, I have a desire. So one of the best evidences, I would say, of the God's Spirit at work in our lives is that we begin to want different things. And I think that's a reason why it starts with desire, because it's, it trains us to start looking for evidence of grace in the man's life. Evidence of grace isn't something that's said to you from outside. Evidence of grace springs up with from in. You're changed. What you used to want, you no longer want because Christ has has taken control of your life. He is now your Lord and Savior, and you bow your knee to Him. And so we look for change whenever we we hear people talk of conversion. And when we start talking of pastoral service, we look for change. Is there a desire? Is Christ controlling this man from the inside? Not as are people telling him things from the outside. So it starts from within. Because that's where the evidence of God's Spirit could work in somebody's lives. And did he decide now? Does he long for pastoral work? Is there, has there been a change in what he wants to do with his life? And now he's pursuing this. Likewise, the man whom God is preparing for pastoral service will sense in himself a deep desire to serve the people of God. So that's this idea of desire. It's inner. It starts with the man. It's singular in that it's him and him alone wrestling with what he feels like God wants him to do. But then there's this second part. It's that first word in the, in the verse, and it's the word aspire. This deals with the external realities. And this goes 
more broadly, but this idea here, it pictures someone who's stretching themselves out to lay hold of something. That's literally what the Greek means. Like it's this guy, he's tiptoeing, there's the apple, he wants to grab it, and he's, he's reaching out, he's making the effort to lay hold of that because that's what he wants. So that's the next logical step. I feel like God's called me to pastor. I've got a desire for that. Now I'm going to step out and pursue that. So that's the second step of this process. And so that's what we've done here today. That's what Donnie has done. He's made it public to the church. I have a desire, and now I need you all to help me discern whether or not that's truly of God or not. I want to. You're not forcing me. But now I'm inviting you to help me discern, are there sufficient evidence of God's grace in my life? We can go down this path. And that's the Aspire. And it looks like this. It looks like if you're already, if you've already been ordained, putting a resume out somewhere or, or something, but it's the outward I'm pursuing, I'm going after, I'm stretching out to lay my hand on this thing that, that I desire. And it's here that the church becomes critical to the process. That's already been said, but let me state it explicitly that you are now, we as God's people, as the church, are critical to this process. We don't leave Donnie to do it all on his own at this point, or Jeffrey at this point. We evaluate, because evaluation is not the job of the pastors alone. And Andrew said that well earlier. It's not for us to nominate, appoint, or compel someone to pastor God's people. Our role, like your role, is to observe, to question to discern, to evaluate, and to recognize whether or not Donnie or Jeffrey or anyone else who, who stands up in this church and says they desire to pastor actually possesses the qualities that it takes and the characteristics that God has set forth. Now this may seem scary. It may seem intimidating as a church member, and that's okay. You can be scared and intimidated by it, but you can't be disobedient to the process. And we have to remember a few things. This might be new ground for us. But Paul tells us that as believers, we have the mind of Christ. Now, we're not infallible in that. We make mistakes. We err. But we're not without help. We're not without resource. We have the mind of Christ. And not only this, but Jesus says, as his people, we hear his voice. And so we've got great encouragement from God's Word to you as, the, as just the, you look at yourself and think of yourself, I'm just a member here, I'm just an average pew sitter. No, you're a participant in a process of evaluation, and you've been given as a believer in Christ, the mind of Christ, and you have the Spirit of Christ within you, and Christ says of you that you hear His voice, that's the capability that you possess, and we use those things, we trust those things, we, we believe those things, and we obey this process that says we evaluate, looking for certain things, not trusting in our abilities to do it ourselves, but in Christ's ability to do it through us. It's the only way I can stand up and preach. It's the only way I can teach because I can't do it on my own. It's not in me, but it's, it's Christ through me. And that's how we evaluate pastors, by Christ working through us. It may be weird and scary and intimidating, but we have to obey and we have to submit because he is capable. He is faithful. It's also important that every potential pastor desire pastoral work. And I emphasize that word because it's not a desire for power. It better not be, at least. It better not be a desire for prestige or self-promotion. And why is that? Well, because the why a man wants to pastor is as important, if not more important, than that he wants to pastor. 
So we need to examine for those things. We need to dig to the bottom and understand those motivations of the heart. I want a pastor. Good. Now let's find out why. What are you searching for? What do you want from this? What's your goal, your motivation, your reason behind this? Whose glory are you seeking? And, and so we dig, we, we question, we learn, we listen, we talk, we get to know the man. We, we watch for what he does and why he does it to discover the heart behind it. More so than with any other trade or vocation, pastoral work uh, it requires a strong personal desire to do the job. We're not, this isn't a career. This isn't just a job. We are talking in some respect about a calling, something that God has, has given these men to do. And yes, there's, God calls into vocation as well, but this is important. And it's, it's important that we discern the desire in the man's heart for many, many, many reasons, but let's think about it. Pastoral work is hard. At times it's demanding. The rewards are not always imminent. So true pastors have to labor out of love for the sheep and out of love for God. Because sometimes it's thankless. And thank God it's not really been a thankless job here. I don't, let me say that because that is the reality that so many pastors experience. Lots of pastors are leaving the ministry, burn out constantly, and part of it is, is they're, they're pastoring churches that are thankless. And that's not been my experience. I don't think it's been Andrew's experience. God has been unusually gracious and kind to us, and most of that's been expressed through you all. And so we thank God for you all. But it's not always easy. It's not always fun. I mean, think about marriage. There are challenges there, and you can say, I love marriage, and I'm challenged by marriage at the same time. And it's not totally unlike pastoral ministry in some of those ways. And it's because of these realities that Jesus would say, he who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and, and scatters them. That's what happens when a man pastors with no heart for pastoral heart for pastoral ministry. The times get tough, things are hard, the, the chips are down, and he says, I'm out. I'm done. I'll see you later. Jesus is looking for those who share his heart for the sheep, who are invested, bought in, who are truly called and appointed by God to this task, and that's why we evaluate. What we do when we evaluate, evaluate men for pastoral service has both temporal and eternal consequences. Choosing a pastor, inviting someone in to be a part of that pastoral team, if you will, for lack of a better way of putting it, has temporal consequences. It's either going to go well or it's not. There's either, he's either qualified or he isn't, and that's going to affect the way that, that he, he interfaces with you all, gives counsel in times of need, all, what he teaches and preaches and, and all those different things, and that's going to affect us now, but that's also going to affect our children in the future, and it and if we, we let men into the pulpit that are unfit for pastoral ministry, it's going to lead people astray. And Paul even says to this church here, I know that after I leave, there are going to be people that rise up from within this own church that twist the scriptures and try to lead people to follow themselves. This is, a, this is an apostle-planted church, pastored by great men. John was there, Paul was there, Timothy was there, just to name a few. And he says, I know this church is going to apostatize, or at least some within it. And so... We have to be searching diligently and, and looking and, and making sure that we see within the man the qualifications that God has set because it, it affects us in, in time, but it can affect us for eternity as well. So many of, of the, the things that we think and believe about God are, are shaped by beloved pastors. 
but not every beloved pastor is a faithful pastor. You can love a, a, a man who has no business preaching the gospel. He can be so good at, at, at caring for you on a personal level and making you feel self-important and never feed your soul or flat out teach you things that are wrong. And so we've got to make sure that we dig and we look for those things that God says are important because it affects us now and it can affect our eternal outcome. So having laid this foundation, let's move on to understand what every pastor must be like. Every pastor. Now we're going to differ in gifts, we're going to differ in personality and all that, but we have to have these common things uh, in common. So any man who, dis- who aspires to do pastoral ministry must possess what I've, I'm calling Christ-like character. And, and this is my first main point I'll have for as we unfold this, and we're not even going to get all the way through Christ-like character. But let's look at that. It's what we see in verses 2 and 3. So let me read those again. Paul says, Therefore an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. And so we could say that the character of Christ is all throughout this, but especially these things that we see here in verses 2 and 3. So in addition to desiring pastoral work and pursuing pastoral work, a prospective pastoral candidate must be the husband of one wife, and he must be above reproach. Okay, so let's start with that above reproach part. What does it mean to be above reproach? We read that, and it sounds good, and it's biblical language, and and we can shake our heads with some vague notion of above reproach. I think I know what that means, but let's make sure we understand what are we saying when we use the terminology above reproach. Well, to be above reproach does not imply, let's start with what it doesn't mean first, it does not imply moral perfection. If it did, there would be no pastors, save Christ himself. But he's gone and he's appointed pastors to, to shepherd in his place as under-shepherds uh, of him. And so it's not moral perfection. It's not even sinlessness. It is this. It simply means that an elder or a pastor is blameless or free from scandalous sin. So in other words, mud could be slung at your pastor. Somebody could sling mud at me and make accusations or Andrew or Donnie or Jeffrey or anybody. I can't control who says things about me. But I can control whether or not they're true. And so the pastor, when the mud's slung on the pastor, it should never stick. So let's go a little deeper with that. He must not be a man who is legitimately convicted for violating just laws or for wronging others. And the reason that I say that is because around the world we do see pastors thrown in jail because they've broken the law in a communist country. We don't call them sinful people because they broke communist law. We call them faithful to Jesus because they will not listen to what man had to say, but they're going to honor God and continue to preach. And so we have to make sure that we've got a category for that because I don't know how much longer things are going to bebop along with relative ease and peace in America. This has been a crazy year. The day It does seem like there's indications that there's going to be more and more political pressure to stop speaking out against sin. Gender issues, homosexuality, those kinds of things in particular already are landing men as close as Canada in jail. That's just across the border, folks. It, it's very likely to come here. And so when I say this, he should, uh, the, the, the accusations can be made, but they're not legitimate. Throw me in jail for preaching the gospel. And that's fine. I'm not a sinner because you threw me in jail. Because if I'm being faithful to God, that, 
and, and you've got an unjust law, I have to violate that law and be faithful to Christ. And that's kind of what I'm driving at here. And so it's a legitimate conviction for a just law uh, is what we have to avoid. So Peter goes on. He says, uh, uh, and I do mean to say Peter, not Paul here. Peter tells pastors to be an example to the flock. A pastor cannot be an example if he does not live above reproach, as Paul is telling us here in 1 Timothy. And we have to be above reproach, even in persecution, even in the face of injustice. And so it's not like, well, we're, we're, we're above reproach until it gets really, really bad, and then we all have freedom to just do whatever. No, we have to be above reproach, even if accusations are made, even if injustice is done. We stay above reproach. That's faithfulness to our, our God. Philip Graham Ryken says this, the integrity of the elder or pastor must be beyond question. And so I would say that everything following above reproach here in verse 1, he must be above, verse 2 rather, the overseer must be above reproach. Everything that follows that are categories and ways and, and, and places that the man of God must be above reproach. Generally above reproach, but above reproach in marriage, above reproach in, in uh uh, vices and things like that, and he goes down through the list above the pro reproach in the way he manages his family. And so we're going to look at, uh, at at the next qualification there, husband of one wife, and that's about as far as we'll get today, but what it means to be above reproach there. So in general, above reproach is being blameless, free from scandalous sin, mud slung, but it cannot stick because the character of this man will not, will not let it stick. But then we must also be above reproach, as I said, in our marriages. And so let's take a look at that. The husband of one wife. And this is where the balance of what I have to say will be spent. There's a lot of debate over what Paul means here. And so I want to be clear. This verse, the husband of one wife there in verse 2, makes it clear that biolog only biological males can serve as pastors. The word for husband, aner, it is in this context, it can mean different things, but in this context, it distinguishes male from female. And it's the second time in this letter that Paul has used uh, this idea of male leadership in the church in just five verses. So if we just back up into the end of chapter 2 for us, verse 12, he says, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. He's speaking specifically in the church here. And so Paul then says, as he gets into the qualifications of a pastor, uh, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife. And so this word, aner, is being used here, and it separates male from female in this context. And we know that because he goes on to talk about husband versus wife. So he means it to, to represent male and not female because he specifically talks about a husband here. And so this man must be the husband of one wife, he says. But he also literally separates the men from the boys with the same use of the term. Because again, there's a shade of meaning with this, with this term. And he also, by connecting it to the idea of marriage, says this is not someone so young and so immature that they can't take on responsibility that they can't make a living and provide for people and, and do the, the, the noble work of pastor, and, and there's a connection there with marriage. And so I, don't, I personally don't understand this to be a command to be married because Paul could have phrased it differently. Literally in the Greek, it's three words, uh, and it's a word for man, woman, and, and, and married, basically, uh, and so or, or husband. I should just stick with what I know. And so anyway... Uh, I don't see in this a command to be married, 
but that the person has to be of a maturity that can take on marriage and or pastoring. So he separated men from women, he separated boys from men here, and he goes on. The phrase husband of one wife has generated much debate over the years. And in the Greek, it could be translated as one woman man or one wife husband. Because it's literally, like I said, just three words there in the Greek. So there are at least three ways then that people have come down on what do we do with this phrase? How do we understand it? What do we think Paul's saying here? And let's look at them briefly. There's so much to be said, I won't have time to get into all the nuance, but some people say that pastors must be married. They read this as a command. Paul commands marriage. Thou shalt be married to pastor a church. That's not my position, but let's look at that. Here's why I don't think that's the best interpretation. If Paul means here that pastors must be married, it seems to create a contradiction with other things that he teaches. And I'm not going to go to this verse. I'm just going to reference it. So if you're a note taker, you can write it down. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 7 through 9, and then go down to verses 32 through 35. In that section, Paul teaches that singleness is an acceptable option for God's servants. He deals with singleness, and it's a, it's a perfectly viable option for people within the church and, and servants of God. So that's one plank in my argument why I don't think Paul's saying, well, you have to be married to be a pastor. But there's more. If you just think about this, Paul was a pastor of, of the church at Ephesus for a time, for probably three years or so before this. And very likely, Paul was unmarried when he served in that role. Paul does speak about being a single person uh, uh, in, in other parts of the Scripture. And so there's some, con uh, some conflict. Uh, some people say, well, he was married and a widower, and other people say he was never married. I don't know. I wasn't there. And I don't see sufficient evidence to tell me strongly one way or the other, but there's a very good chance that Paul was not married when he, when he was the pastor at Ephesus for those three years. And so if Paul means to command marriage, then Paul contradicted his own teaching. He, didn't even, he wasn't even qualified by his own standard, if that's the case. But consider this also. If that's the standard, then what church is Jesus qualified to pastor? He never married. Yeah, we can talk about the marriage with the bride, uh, the, 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 the marriage supper of the Lamb and all that, but that's still yet in the future. So if you, if you want to go that route, I see a problem. So if, you're, if your qualifications to pastor don't let Jesus pastor your church, you've probably set them in the wrong spot. So for those reasons, I think Paul doesn't mean to command marriage. Others would say, well, he just means that pastors must not be polygamist. And it's true, a pastor must not be a polygamist. That is a true statement. I believe that wholeheartedly. But that's not likely what Paul means by this phrase, one woman man. I'm going to rely on Alexander Strzok, who wrote a book called Biblical Eldership, and he says this, This seems like a good interpretation on the surface, but the related phrase, the wife of one man, is used in 1 Timothy 5.9, and it makes this interpretation nearly impossible. 1 Timothy 5.9 lists the qualifications for widows who receive living assistance from the church and specifies that a woman must have been the wife of one man. Certainly Paul was not referring to women who had two or, three, two or more husbands at one time, which is called polyandry, because polyandry was abhorrent to Jews as well as to the Romans and definitely was not a problem in the church. So it's unlikely then that the phrase husband of one wife is intended primarily to address polygamy. 
So he's making a comparison, and he's saying, in society, there was a thing called polyandry, but it was largely repudiated and disgusted people on both sides of the divide, and so it wasn't a problem. We, didn't, we don't have records of, of lots of polyandrous women in, in the churches in Paul's time, and it's the same construction in the Greek. It's just one, one woman man or one man woman, and he says it's very doubtful and suspicious that's even in Paul's mind later in this same letter, so it's probably not the same line of thought that he has earlier in the letter. He's probably not addressing polygamy, having multiple wives, if he's not addressing having multiple husbands later. Paul, just looking for a consistency within what Paul is saying here. And so I agree. I do think that it would be absolutely wrong to have more than one wife, but I don't think that's the import or the focus of what Paul is saying here when he says the husband of one wife. Others would say pastors must have been married only once. This view is used to cut two ways by some. First, some forbid divorced men from, re, from pastoring. Others would say, well, uh, we permit men to be divorced but not remarried, and that's Charles Stanley would be one of those guys. And so some people are perfectly fine with that, and other people are not. So you can slice that one two different ways. Or this other way that they would look at it is to say that they would interpret it to mean that a widower cannot remarry and serve as a pastor either. So it would, it would forbid divorced men or some divorced men. Others would say it would even forbid widowers from remarriage because the text says the husband of one wife and so if he get, if she dies and he remarries that's two wives and that's it can't happen i don't think this is biblical either and here's why first corinthians 739 says a wife is bound as long as her husband lives but if her husband is dead she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the lord and this is not an isolated passage Romans 7, 2, 1 Corinthians 7, 8, and 9, 1 Timothy 5, 14, all talk about remarriage and all talk about it favorably. They all allow it to take place. So I would ask the question then, does Paul intend to, to erect a double standard for pastors? Everybody but a pastor can, can be married, can have a spouse die and be remarried. But it would be wrong and disqualifying for him to do so. I don't see warrant for it. Not when the rest of Scripture says that every other Christian person that's had a, a spouse that's lived and died is free to be married in the Lord. I would say that would be the qualification. Your pastor shouldn't remarry to an unbeliever. And I think that would be a highly biblical standard to hold. But I don't think that this forbids a, a widowed man from taking on another wife. And I don't see any other position that, that you could that you could uh, reach from that. I, so there's another problem here, though. If we're thinking in terms of the divorce aspect, let me, let me, ask, let me ask it this way. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9-11 through 11 says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So having that, those verses in mind, let's ask this question. What if the man who wants to be pastor had been a wild fornicator in his youth, but he never married? He's clearly not a one-woman man, but I don't know of a single church that tells anybody that prior to salvation who, who was sexually immoral, well, you can't pastor because when you were a sinner, you were exceedingly sinful. 
You weren't a one-woman man before you came to Jesus. Doesn't that seem a bit problematic? Like, I, I, I can't think of a single church that says, if you were sexually immoral before you came to Jesus, you, you can't pastor. It's just, it can't happen. But we leave ourselves open for that if we're not careful. I've never... So let me ask it this way. Does it seem consistent then to say that a man could be saved and sanctified from any of these sins, including homosexuality, and serve as pastor, but not a man who's been divorced? And I know this is a touchy subject. I'll, I'll give you that, and I'm, I'm stepping in it, and I know that I'm stepping in it, and that's okay because we have to come to a conclusion. We, we have to know what we believe, and you're free to interpret the Scriptures differently than me, but here's what I'm, here's what I'm seeing. I'm saying that I read 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11, through 11, and I see a complete salvation that takes place. These men were, some of them were fornicators, some of them were homosexuals, and, and they're saved and they're wiped clean, and it's as if they had never sinned in God's sight. And Paul says, such were some of you guys. And he doesn't say, there's no indication that any of these men were unqualified from that point forward, having put faith in Christ, to pastor. And so I think that, that a viewpoint that would not allow that would be tragically inconsistent with Scripture. So I hold to this fourth interpretation, and I'm, I'm, I'll finish up with it and a little bit of conclusion. Pastors must be sexually pure and totally committed to their wife. I think that's the heart of what Paul's driving at here. I don't think Paul's saying, if when you were a sinner, you were married and it failed, and you remarried and you've been saved, you're still not qualified to pastor a church. And we have to wrestle through this. We have to, we have to know where we stand on this issue. And I don't think that's what the Scriptures are teaching. I think what it's saying is, is that a pastor has to be faithful to his wife. So again, drawing from Alexander Strzok in his book, uh, Biblical Lettership, he says the simplest and least problematic interpretation for what uh, the husband of one wife means is that it is meant to be a positive statement that expresses faithful monogamous marriage. And I agree with Strzok. Faithful monogamous marriage. As far as I can see, this interpretation does no violence to other texts, and it does not set one sin apart as to function as a second unforgivable sin. And what I mean by that is this. When we deal with divorce as that thing that no man can ever recover from, and if as a sinner he was divorced and he gets saved but he still isn't fit to pastor, that's just one thing hanging over his head as if Christ's blood wasn't enough to take the guilt of that sin away. There's one unpardonable sin. It's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It's not divorce. Divorce is ugly. Divorce is painful. Divorce is destructive. And God says in the prophets, I hate divorce. But he doesn't say that men who have been divorced and have given their lives to Jesus have to live under the guilt of that divorce and the disqualification that we think that gives them. I don't buy it. And again, you're free to fall in a different place. Just fall there with charity. Because I'm making my case, and, and I know that that's not always the position that people always have, but I, I am making that case, uh, and I'm, I think I'm making it biblically. It calls us to think a little deeper uh, than perhaps we were taught as we were, as we were growing up. So, I think this deeper, this other understanding, the husband of one wife calls for faithfulness and, and monogamous relationship in this present marriage drives us to some more relevant questions than just, was he ever divorced, check him off the list, and move on. 
It's so easy to just, that's it. We don't dig any deeper because that's the only, that's the trigger. That's what we're looking for. Now take him out of the resume pile. No, that's not, I don't think that's right. But two, we need to ask deeper questions. How about this? And I think this text drives us there. The husband of one wife. So does this man love his wife as Christ loves the church? How about we ask that question of a prospective pastoral candidate? Is he presently, currently in this marriage that he's in now, loving that wife as Christ loves the church? Because that's what's expected of him. That's what Paul preaches in another text. We could ask it this way. Is he faithfully committed to this woman alone? Is he watching porn all the time? Because that's not faithful commitment to one woman. That is a disqualifying sin. And that falls under this idea of a one-woman man. You're not a one-woman man if you're, you're watching things that are illicit like that. It's absolutely horrible, and it's, it, it, it takes away from this idea of a faithfulness to one woman. I'm sorry. We should ask this question. Is he faithfully leading his family as a pastor in the home? And I'm really borrowing from farther on down, and I know that. And then another question we could ask is, does he jealously guard the, their sexual purity and reputation? So the point is to evaluate the man that he is, not pass judgment on the man that he used to be. And I think that's the important thing that Paul's pointing us to here. We look to see if God's grace is conquering sin in him now. We look to see if Christ is being formed in the man now, not has he always been living up to the standard of good Southern Baptist expectations. So in conclusion, I want to make some applications, and these really will go quick, but there's eight of them. This is eight things I want you to do in response. Thank God for his outrageous grace in raising up among us men who desire pastoral work. That's one thing that we just need to do. One of the things that marks unbelievers is they're thankless. So believers ought to be marked by thankfulness. And one way that we can concretely thank God is because he's given us multiple people, multiple men, and even beyond that in our other ministry positions, faithful people who love God, love his sheep, and want to serve. So thank God. That's one appropriate response. Number two, exercise your God-given charge to evaluate all pastoral candidates. Donnie, Jeffrey, and whoever comes in the future, but let me say again, you've got to constantly be evaluating me and Andrew. It's not a one and done. I could disqualify myself tomorrow, and you need to be ready to kick me out if I do. Graciously try to restore me, of course, but you've got to be ready to take action. This isn't some sentimental thing where, oh, he used to be a good pastor, but now he preaches heresy. No, if I start to preach heresy, I want you to boot me, and you ought to boot me, and then you can come try to win me back to the truth. But exercise your God-given charge to evaluate all of us. Do not require less than God requires, but do not require more than God requires. Very quickly, I, I know I'm, I ain't even going to look at my watch. I don't want to know what time it is. But I was filling in at a church who lost their pastor. Uh, they started asking questions about alcohol. What's your stance on alcohol? And their particular position, or at least a couple of the members of the church's particular position was, if you don't call it an absolute sin to, to have any alcohol at all, then you can't pastor this church. Well, they had plenty of qualified people that said, well, I don't agree that the Bible calls it a sin. I personally don't drink, and, and you know, I'm not going to advocate that people do. Nope, you're not qualified. And this is not to say that that's the only reason, but the church doesn't exist anymore. They couldn't find a man who would call drinking a sin, which is what they wanted them to do, uh, and so they wound up going through every candidate they had, couldn't find one, and they don't exist. And in my mind, that's an example of, I've required more than God requires. That's a pitfall. The other one is, I don't require as much as God requires. And that's folly. 
but we don't want to do either one of those. We want, to, we want to require what God requires because he knows best what it takes to be a pastor. He invented the office. Number three, pray for the Spirit's help to wisely and graciously evaluate Donnie, Jeffrey, Andrew, and me. So we've, I've, again, coming back to that, but I'm asking you to specifically pray for a help because you probably don't feel like you can. You probably feel overwhelmed with the, with the idea. We're not, superior, we're not spiritually superior to you. You need the Spirit's help and God will give it. Pray for it. Number four, read and reread 1 Timothy and Titus and keep God's requirements before your mind in all this, this entire process. Don't let this be the only time we look at the text. Number five, be intentional about getting to know uh, and, uh, Donnie and Jeffrey both. Ask questions, just like Donnie suggested. I love that he included that. Ask me, ask my wife, ask my children, ask my coworkers, ask my, my old pastors, ask anybody you want, because as we read through this list, there's a lot of outside information that we need, and most churches do a one servant, you preach a sermon, you make a decision, and then you ask questions later. That's, I don't see that here. I see a thorough investigation of the man and the people that know the man, and that's what Donnie's invited, and that's what we ought to do. And sixth here, it's actually got two more in it, trust Christ and follow this process for evaluating fitness to serve. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word, and I thank you for the opportunity to preach it. I pray that you would use it, that you would encourage us to be faithful through it, and that you would give us discernment, God, as we uh, evaluate Donnie, as we evaluate Jeffrey, and as there's all ongoing evaluation of Andrew and myself. God, help us to not stumble, to not be men who disqualify ourselves would help this congregation to be bold and, and courageous enough to hold the standard that you've set. Give us wisdom to, to not go beyond you, and God, give us grace to not require less than you require. Help us to be faithful in this task, God, and guide us through it, we ask, so that this church can be strengthened, and so that the, the other churches can be strengthened, and more, more importantly, so that Christ can be glorified. And we ask these things in his name and for his glory. Amen.